When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Guess what? This is the last episode of the year, and it's going to be a good one, I promise. We're going to head down to New Orleans and talk about an infamous woman who lived in what is arguably one of the most sinful and notorious times of the city. Pretty wild, right? Well, with that in mind, I just want to give you all a heads up that this episode does include some discussion of sex work. So if you have small kids around, maybe this ain't the best one for them to hear. Don't worry, though, it's not graphic or anything, but I just want to make sure that you're aware that this week isn't the typical haunting or abandoned places, ghost story, murders, etc., right? Also, if you haven't heard, in just a few days on Wednesday, December 21st at 7 p.m., I'm going to be doing a live stream over on our Patreon. That's right, we're going to be on there talking about some of the recent episodes, maybe sharing with y'all some pictures, telling stories, and maybe if we can figure out exactly how this works, we'll even be answering some questions that you might have. We'll see. So if you want to attend, head over to our Patreon page and sign up to be a supporter today. And do it now because that live stream is only a few days away on Wednesday, December 21st at 7 p.m. Central. We hope to see y'all there, and the link is in the show notes. 
Now with that, let's head on down to the Metairie Cemetery in New Orleans, Louisiana, and get started with this week's episode. You see, the Metairie Cemetery is perhaps the grandest of all of those famed cities of the dead down in the Crescent City. Established in 1872, this beautiful park-like graveyard quickly became the final resting place for many of the New Orleans elite at the time, as its location out on the edge of town offered enough space to create elaborate tombs, structures that provided the wealthy the opportunity to ensure that their final resting place reflected their success in life. Adding to this unique character is the fact that the Metairie Cemetery was built on the site of a former horse racing track. And as a result, it's organized in a distinct oval shape. In November of 1877, just five years after its gates opened, the New Orleans Daily Picayune boasted, quote, Undoubtedly, the Metairie Cemetery is destined to be the great necropolis of the South. As far as its location, ornaments, care, and poetry are concerned, we say that this great city of the dead is unrivaled. It is among these hundreds of elaborate memorials that one truly unique and beautiful tomb still stands. It's made of rose marble and granite and topped with carved flaming torches. At its doors is a bronze statue of a young woman with a bouquet of roses resting in one arm and the other reaches out for the door as if she's attempting to enter. Today, the tomb is owned by the Morales family but that is not for whom the monument was built. In the early 1900s, this burial plot was purchased and the tomb designed to the exacting standards of one of the most illustrious women in New Orleans, a well-known madam and the owner of the most expensive Storyville brothel in the era of legal sex work, a woman named Josie Arlington. As you can expect, when word got out that Arlington would be laid to rest in the same burial ground where many of the city's wealthy and elite maintained family tombs, a scandal ensued. And to this day, the beautiful Rose Marble Monument is a centerpiece for conversations, as local lore claims that Arlington's spirit is quite active there, even though the madam's remains were removed. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The woman who would one day become the famed Madam Josie Arlington was born Mary Anna Dubler on February 8, 1864, in the Carrollton neighborhood of New Orleans. Her parents were German immigrants, and Mary was the middle child, born between her older brother Henry and her younger Peter. Tales of Mary Dubler's early life are somewhat contradictory as her reputation seemed to attract numerous theories as to why she would enter into the world of sex work. Some say her parents died young, leaving her at the age of four to be raised by the nuns of St. Elizabeth's, a girl's orphanage on Napoleon Avenue. And it's for this reason they believe that she was driven to the streets, rebellious of the heavy-handed fire and brimstone teachings of her caretakers. Others claim that she lived under the strict rules of her father's household well into her teen years. The story goes that one evening, young Mary Dubler failed to return home in time for curfew. Furious that their rules were broken and they were disrespected, her father refused to allow her to enter, and from then on, she was forced to support herself. Exactly what story's fact will likely never be known, but the tale that claims she was on the streets doing sex work as young as 10 years old is entirely false. On the other hand, as an adult, Josie did speak of her childhood on record once, and only once. In 1892, she said, quote, My right name is Mary A. Dubler, was raised by an aunt named Schultz, and was once known by that name. This, of course, did little to temper speculation. But Arlington's niece would later say that Josie said that this aunt who raised her was quite cruel. Yet no matter how or why she left home, one thing is certain. By the time she was 17, she was no longer alone. By her side was a man named Philip Lebrano. How the pair met is also a mystery, but it was Philip who Josie went to after leaving her family. In Harnett T. Kane's 1949 work, Queen New Orleans, 
Lebrano is depicted as a driving force behind her separation from her parents and her entry into the brothels of New Orleans. Quote, A certain Lebrano took her to dinner and did not bring her home until nearly 11 o'clock. This, of course, could mean only one thing. Her father slammed the door, and though Josie knocked and knocked, he kept it barred against her. Meanwhile, Lebrano was waiting outside. He was afraid he couldn't support her, but he had another suggestion. She would support him. He knew one or two madams, and with his backing, she could do well for herself. Mary Dubler did just that, but in spite of her bitter exodus from family, she continued to care for them and their reputation by using a series of aliases over the following decade, including Mary Nix, Josie Dubler, Josie Schultz, and Josie Alton. Then, as her entrepreneurial spirit grew and she sought to rise higher than that of simply working at someone else's house, Josie became the head of her own brothel, and according to an 1885 city directory, she was Miss Josie Lebrano. Often called the Chateau Lebrano, Josie's business was located in one of the seedier areas of the city, and it had a reputation to match. Known for attracting a rough clientele, fights broke out nightly between the men and her employees. Unsurprisingly, arrests were common, but these were largely due to those fights rather than illegal sex work. In fact, Josie herself had quite a temper and a reputation for her willingness to get into a physical confrontation. One notable example of this was an intense fight she had with a woman named Beulah Ripley, who worked at a nearby house. By the time the pair were broken up and the violence stopped, Josie was missing large chunks of her hair and Beulah was missing part of her ear and lip. But it wasn't just other women who caused Josie's temper to flare. It was Philip Lebrano as well. Many assumed that it was he who encouraged Josie into the profession of sex work acting as her pimp. But by the time she was a madam in her own right, she was the one in charge. It was her house, and she was making the money that supported him. And over the years, they were known to have a, quote, stormy life, and, quote, were frequently before the record's court for fighting and disturbing the peace. The couple's relationship lasted nine years, but in December of 1890, Philip did the unforgivable. In January of 1890, Philip came home after a drunken altercation with Josie's younger brother, Peter, and made it clear that her family was no longer welcome in their home. Some say that she responded by ensuring he knew this was her house and that Philip was free to leave if he had a problem. But only 15 minutes later, an extremely intoxicated Peter Dubler arrived, complicating the issue, and Philip Lebrano responded violently. According to the Daily City Item newspaper, quote, Lebrano took a pistol from the mantelpiece, and although witnesses attempted to prevent him by getting between the two men, he shot Dubler. The autopsy indicated that Dubler was struck in the nose 
and the bullet lodged in his brain. He then lingered in the hospital without any chance of survival before eventually succumbing to his wounds. Though initial reports indicated that there were witnesses to the event who attempted to intervene, it was later confirmed that the only people there at the time in question were Peter, Josie, and Lebrano. Josie later testified that her then ex-lover insulted her brother, and when Peter took a step forward and placed his hand on the foot of the bed, Lebrano got the revolver and shot him, using Josie's shoulder to steady the weapon. According to her testimony, Peter never actually made a move to strike Lebrano, and most certainly did not have a weapon. Josie also testified that when she asked Lebrano what he had done, he replied simply, quote, If I didn't look out, he would shoot me. Of course, Philip Lebrano's testimony was a complete contradiction to Josie's. He claimed that he heard Peter declare he would kill him, and that he didn't shoot Peter until he had hit him first. Notably, Police on the scene reported that Lebrano had no marks on his face to suggest that he'd been in an altercation. But hours later, when he turned up at the police station, he did. The entire affair was swamped with contradictions, not just from Josie and Lebrano, but even Peter Dubler's last wishes were in question. Dubler's mother-in-law testified that on his deathbed, Peter claimed that he had been at fault for the whole affair and did not want Lebrano punished. Yet Peter's brother, Henry Dubler, testified that he made him promise to prosecute Lebrano because he, quote, shot him like a dog. Finally, after two years and two separate trials, Philip Lebrano was acquitted of murder. But by this time, Josie confirmed, quote, I have another man now. The death of Peter Dubler marked a turning point in the life of Mary Dubler, or then Josie Lebrano. She was now determined to make changes and elevate both her reputation and station in society. But first, Josie took a vacation with her new paramour, John Thomas Brady. The couple traveled to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and stayed at the most elaborate hotel in the area, which was named simply the Arlington. Clearly, Josie was inspired by this experience because upon her return to New Orleans, she was no longer Josie Lebrano, but was now Josie Arlington. Immediately, she changed the name of her house to Chateau de Arlington and began making improvements. Profanity was no longer allowed by anyone, whether it was a client or an employee. Her hope was to appeal to a more sophisticated clientele, so she sought to employ women who looked and sounded exotic. Her advertisements boasted this, stating that the girls of Chateau de Arlington were recruited from all over the world. But in reality, 
Many of them were former circus performers or dancers that she convinced to come work for her. In the August 1895 edition of The Mascot, a bit of a tabloid of the day, a woman wrote, quote, society is graced by the presence of a bona fide baroness direct from the court of St. Petersburg. The baroness is at present residing at the Chateau de Arlington and is known as La Belle Stewart. But in reality, the woman was a sex worker who had previously been employed at a brothel in Chicago during the World's Fair. The illusion, however, was far more important than reality, and Josie was satisfying her clientele's desire for the mysterious. All of this work was not for nothing. The Chateau de Arlington became incredibly successful, and Josie began to appear in society as a refined woman. This better reputation meant more business, which in turn gave her more financial security and placed her in the company of powerful men who could give her a leg up on what was to come. And one of these men was Tom Anderson. Anderson was a fellow business owner and city employee, so when he heard conversations from politicians about the creation of a legal red light district in New Orleans... He told Josie, and the pair became unofficial business partners. Together, they purchased properties on Basin Street for what would soon become the main thoroughfare of New Orleans' now infamous Storyville. Initially labeled as the District, in reference to the term Red Light District, Storyville was created in July of 1897 with the purpose of containing the seedier side of the city. And what emerged was 38 blocks of brothels and bars. There, interested patrons of all levels of society could find some form of sinful entertainment. It boasted everything from cribs, which were small rooms barely large enough to fit a cot, to high-end brothels, which in contrast were described by famed jazz musician Jelly Roll Morton as, quote, stone mansions from three to seven parlors and from 15 to 25 women, all clad in evening gowns and diamonds galore. As for the name Storyville, well, the politician who made this happen was a man named Sidney Story. Unsurprisingly, one of the most elegant places in this new part of town was owned by Josie Arlington. Her house, which she called the Arlington, sat at 225 North Basin Street. And over the following years, this high-end brothel would enshrine Josie as one of the most famed madams of Storyville. Even during her lifetime, she was given the nickname of Queen of the Demimonde. And of her property, biographer Marita Woywood Crandall wrote, quote, she was driven to erect a structure so fine it would be comparable to an elegant salon fit for a lady. Marble, wood, and elaborate mirrors accompanied spectacular oil paintings, giving the lounges an elite atmosphere, so that the building itself became the attraction in addition to the entertainment.
Arlington regularly advertised in the city's infamous blue books, the directories of Storyville. These publications not only provided addresses and descriptions advertising each of the madams and their brothels, but also listed the names of the women working in the district and at what address they could be found. Frequently, Josie purchased more pages in Blue Book advertising than any other house that was listed there, and she even included full pages of pictures of the various exotic salons within the walls of the Arlington, a Chinese parlor, a Turkish parlor, an American parlor, a music room, and a mirror room. These themed spaces, along with 16 bedrooms, ensured there was something at the Arlington to fulfill the desires of anyone who stepped through its doors. Notably, the focus of these advertisements wasn't the perceived beauty of the ladies, but rather on the elegance and sophistication of the establishment. Men who came to the Arlington came for the environment and nobility of it, not just for a romp. And indeed, the ladies who worked there were known to entertain men from the upper echelons of New Orleans society. Politicians, judges, lawyers, bankers, doctors, and even city officials. Of course, they did pay a high price for it. The Arlington was proudly known as one of, if not the most expensive brothels in Storyville, charging $5 a visit. This high price ensured that when in Josie's brothel, a customer could have whatever they wanted, no matter what their inclinations. Then, later in the evening, for an additional fee, Guests could watch and participate in what was billed as a, quote, sexual circus. There is one thing, however, that Josie refused to participate in on moral grounds. The selling of a girl's virginity. Josie Arlington drew a line in the sand at this practice and refused to have any part in the, quote, ruination of young girls. For years, the Arlington thrived. But then, on December 1st, 1905, tragedy struck. An event that, in retrospect, marked the beginning of the end for Josie Arlington's reign as one of Storyville's most influential. We'll explore this and more after the break. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, 
trying to hit a goal of $20,000, and it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Josie Arlington was born the daughter of German immigrants who had little to their name. Yet she rose to become an incredibly wealthy madam and celebrated figure in New Orleans' infamous Storyville district. But the beginning of the end for Josie Arlington came on December 1st, 1905. It was on that fateful day that a fire broke out at the Arlington. The cause has been attributed to an electrical problem, but some speculate that it may have been inadvertently started by hired painters working on the exterior of the building, who may have been scorching old paint off the structure in preparation for a fresh coat. Given the time in the morning and that the previous day had been Thanksgiving, it was likely that most of the house was still asleep when the fire broke out. Stirred from their slumber, the women had little time to pack any valuables or even get properly dressed before escaping. The New Orleans item wrote of the women who lived there, quote, When they escaped from the burning building, they assembled in Tom Anderson's saloon at the corner of Custom House and Basin Streets, but scantily attired. The item also reported of a, quote, touching incident of the bitter weeping of one of the women who was crying because her mother's picture had been burned. When the flames were finally extinguished, the Arlington's roof was destroyed and the top two floors badly damaged. Fortunately, a good portion of the ground floor was made of stone, which prevented the complete devastation of the building. Some say Josie almost died that day trying to save the Arlington, although some reports say it was really her valuable jewelry that she was trying to get to. This included a diamond necklace she valued at $1,500, upwards of $45,000 today. Sadly, it was left behind in her private bedchamber on the fourth floor. Society as a whole and the ensuing newspaper coverage were not kind to Josie and the loss she endured, identifying her condescendingly as, quote, the Arlington woman. And in the end, the damage was valued at roughly $20,000, about 600000 
in today's currency. Josie vowed to rebuild, and in the meantime, the women moved into the top floor of Tom Anderson's saloon, which added the tagline, the Arlington Annex, to its name. But it is said that upon watching the destruction of what she had built, destroyed Josie's spirit, and her heart was just no longer in the business. So in 1909, at the age of 45, Josie Arlington retired, leaving her rooms at the brothel in favor of her mansion at 2721 Esplanade Avenue. There, she spent her final years with her longtime paramour, Tom Brady, and her beloved niece, Anna. From the time she was born, Josie was known by many names, and while she will be remembered most by her professional name of Arlington, which she went by in private was Mrs. Brady. The use of a married name was likely an obvious choice. After all, she and Tom lived together and acted as husband and wife in the privacy of their own home. Some folks who knew them might have even believed they were married, completely unaware of Josie's former profession and it's for this reason that she likely used Tom's surname, hoping it would protect her family's reputation. And the family, who she cared most about protecting, was her niece Anna. Josie cared deeply for the young girl and wanted nothing more than to provide her with the life that was never available to her, giving her a place to live, sending her to the best Catholic boarding schools available, and offering numerous opportunities to travel. Together, Josie and Anna lived a life similar to that of any other respectable family of the day. But Anna was quite sheltered. So much so that it wasn't even until she was in her 20s that Anna discovered the truth about her beloved aunt's profession. The only threat to Josie's protection came in 1902 when Anna's school discovered the truth about their wealth and refused to allow Anna to return on moral grounds. So Josie responded by bringing Anna to Europe, and the pair traveled the world. In 1909, when Josie retired, Anna remained with her, enjoying an extravagant lifestyle. The pair frequently shopped for jewelry, hats, and other luxury items, and had custom clothing made for themselves, all the while throwing lavish parties. Then, when they tired of the city's atmosphere, they left her mansion on Esplanade in favor of one of Josie's numerous other properties, including a summer home in past Christian, Mississippi, a home named Villa Anna in Covington, Louisiana, and a farm in Abita Springs that was overseen by her nephew, Henry Dubler Jr. By 1913, however, Josie's health started to deteriorate. It was said that without the full-time occupation of the business, Josie's rages began anew, and as a result, the police started regularly visiting Esplanade Avenue, as the neighbors often reported loud, angry behavior. It seemed Josie was suffering from dementia. Then, on February 14, 1914, only a week after her 51st birthday, Josie Arlington passed away. 
funeral was a small private affair, attended only by her family, a few friends which included Tom Anderson, several nuns of the Sisters of Charity, two priests, and eight altar boys. Then, a week after the service, Josie's niece Anna, who was now 30, married Arlington's former lover, Tom Brady, who was 51. Of course, this set off a legal fight for Josie's fortune. Her brother Henry sought to prevent Anna and Brady from taking everything, believing that this marriage was a ploy to ensure Brady's control over Josie's sizable estate, which including the contents of her business, her personal possessions, her various properties and cash on hand, came to a total $59,197.86, which today would be upwards of $1.7 million. Unfortunately, every legal argument Henry attempted to use to prevent Brady from gaining access to Josie's fortune was negated by the fact that he married Anna, who Josie had intentionally left much of her estate to. So the court eventually ruled in favor of Anna and Brady. What Josie Arlington would have thought of the whole affair is unknown but the rest of her family certainly saw this as a betrayal of her legacy. And it didn't help that when the pair married, they showed no shame continuing to live as a couple in what was once Josie Arlington's home on Esplanade Avenue. Sadly, they squandered the money, and within a few years, the entirety of Josie's fortune was gone. Yet the ultimate betrayal of this Storyville legend didn't come until February 15, 1915. It was on this date, exactly one year and a day after her burial, that she was removed from the tomb she had paid for and designed in life. Anna and Brady had sold it. Josie had purchased the plot back in 1910 for $2,000 and then in 1911 signed a contract with a sculptor to create the magnificent mausoleum. Arlington oversaw every detail of the design, spending the significant sum of $5,500 on the final product. Notably, in early illustrations of the tomb plans, one had the name Brady carved in the stone, while the other, Red Dubler. Perhaps even at the time, it was a question for her as to whether to maintain the fiction of a marriage even after death or to reclaim a name that she had not used in so long. But on February 17, 1914, the New Orleans item wrote, quote, Only one word, Dubler, is carved upon the shaft. It was her maiden name. The tomb was certainly unique compared to others in the cemetery. It was made of rose marble and granite topped with carved torches and, of course, had the bronze statue of a girl standing with her hand reaching to the door. No one knows what meanings Josie placed in this design, though lore has grown around it. Some say the red stone and flaming torches were representations of the red light district and the statue a representation of a young girl coming to Arlington, only to be turned away. Others say the girl is Josie herself on that fateful night of her youth, attempting to get back into her father's house. As for her remains, 
Josie was reburied somewhere else within Metairie Cemetery. Her new resting place never disclosed to the public. At the time, Anna and Brady claimed the sale was due to the tomb's heightened attention and folks' disdain for her presence there. It didn't help that on the road outside of the cemetery, a red railroad sign pole was installed, causing the already reddish-colored tomb to glow, creating the illusion that the tomb was on fire. So crowds flocked to the Metairie Cemetery to see the flaming tomb of Josie Arlington. Eventually, though, the red railroad light was relocated, but the stories remain of the glowing tomb, causing some to claim that at night, the carved torches atop the tomb will burst into flames. But of all the mystery and drama surrounding Josie Arlington's crypt, it is the groundkeepers of the past who claim to have experienced the supernatural there, swearing that at night, the statue of the maiden frequently becomes enraged and can be heard pounding on the mausoleum's door as though she's locked out. And some even say that the statue has been known to wander away from the tomb entirely, as if it's searching for Josie's final resting place. It's then found later in another part of the Metairie Cemetery. Today, the beautiful rose-colored tomb built by the Queen of the Demimond is owned by the Morales family, though for most, it will forever be remembered as Josie Arlington's. And although it is still unknown where her body was laid to rest, her legacy in the Crescent City will likely never be forgotten. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. Join us over on Patreon to receive additional content, including ad-free episodes and access to our upcoming live stream. We'll see you there. Lucky Lady Shacks. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.